Uh, Galatians chapter 4, uh, whenever we left off last time, brethren, uh, we had taken a little parenthesis in our exposition because we were moving from verse 29 into verse 1 and beyond in verse 4, or chapter 4. And if you look at verse 29 there, uh, it says, And if you be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And we took a couple of, well, we took a week to look at faith and in Hebrews chapter, uh, chapter 10 or chapter 11, uh, we looked at faith and we've seen that faith, uh, is the undergirding or faith is what supports and holds up our hope or our assurance that we are Christ. Okay. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about assurance and, uh, Assurance isn't anything that we get outside of our, ourselves. We don't, if, if your assurance is in what you do, if your assurance is in, you know, law keeping or good works or whatever the case might be, then your assurance is, is, is misguided. Okay. We can never be assured of our salvation by things we do because every religionist can mock or mimic uh, uh, good works. Okay. Uh, I've known, like I said, I've known people uh, that as I grew up in the church that, you know, they were members for 20 something years and then all of a sudden they're gone now and they've abandoned the faith and they hate Christianity and hate Christ. Uh, so, you know, anybody can mimic something for a long period of time. Assurance isn't something that we get from the outside. It's something that we get on the inside by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is who gives us that assurance. The Bible says that He gives us His Spirit, uh, His Spirit so that we might know that we are His children. Okay, and so we took a break and we looked at faith and we seen how faith is something that is given to every elect child of God. Whenever they are born from above, they have been given the spirit of God in them and they've been given a divine faith as opposed to a natural faith. Everybody has a natural faith. You know, I have a natural faith that if I sit down in that chair, that chair is not going to break down on me. Okay, I have a, a natural faith, but natural faith is not what saves us. It's not what uh, keeps us. It's not what trusts in Christ. The natural faith is just natural faith. And the Bible says that the flesh is just flesh and it cannot please God. So anything that is produced by the flesh, it cannot please God. The only thing that, that comes from us or that comes from within us is the things of the Spirit of God. And that faith that we talk about, biblical faith, is a faith that is a gift of the Spirit of God. It's not, it's not natural to us. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, nor can he, because they are spiritually discerned. Okay, so we cannot have this faith. We don't have a faith that just reaches out and says, oh, I'm going to take that, and now that I've done that, then God gives us something in response to that. No, God gives us, he has saved us in Christ Jesus, and he has given us these gifts of the Spirit by the indwelling of the Spirit in us. And that Spirit is the one who does these things. And so faith, when faith is given to the child of grace, that child of grace then has this undergirding that looks to Christ alone for all their salvation. Okay? And so that's why we went and looked at faith because we've seen that that type of faith is only given to God's elect. It's only given to God's people. Uh, and, and so with that being said, only they are the ones who will ever trust and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and then we moved in from there after we learned that faith is something that is only given to the people of God. Uh, we begin to look at this term seed. It says in verse 29, if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And if you drop down into chapter four, you see that we are heirs in verse one. You see that we are in, uh, uh, verse, uh, uh, verse, uh, uh, five, uh, adopted, uh, the adoption of sons in verse six, your sons. Um, again, verse seven, we are heirs, uh, and so forth. <clears throat> we look at the biblical doctrine of two seeds. Uh, there are two seeds that we see taught throughout the scripture. There's the seed of Satan. We see the Bible says, uh, the seed of Satan and seed of Christ. There is a natural seed. There is a spiritual seed. We see that in the types and the, and the symbols that Christ used in his teaching, we see the wheat and the tares. We see the sheep and the goats. 
uh, we see the wicked and the righteous. Okay? We are not righteous in and of, in and of ourselves. We are righteous because we have righteousness imputed to us, right? None of us is right. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none. We're all wicked. We're all evil. The flesh is, is just flesh and it cannot please God. It can't do anything. So the only righteousness that we have is the righteousness that was imputed to us or that was laid to our account. Okay? And so with that being said, then there are two kinds of people. There is the people that has that righteousness imputed to their account. There are those who does not, or that, that does have uh, righteousness imputed to them. There are those that do, do not. So we have two groups of people. So we spent a couple of weeks looking through all of the scriptures showing how God has shown these two groups of people. One group of the uh, of that, the the elect of God, or the the wheat, the sheep, uh, the righteous, those were elected before the foundation of the world. They were chosen by God. We see in Revelation the Bible talks about that the, there's a a book called the uh, the book of life of the Lamb slain, and that the Bible says that in that book names were written before the foundation of the world. There were names written. It just wasn't a book of life, and then whenever somebody chooses Christ, somebody's name was written down. You know, uh, we used to sing that old hymn uh, whenever I was growing up. There's a new name written down in heaven, and it's mine. Yes, it's mine. Okay. There are no new names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The, Lamb's, the names were written before the foundation of the world before anything was created. And God had set those names there. But listen, brethren, in Revelation, it talks about the names that were not written. There were names written, and there were names whose names were not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And so there are two groups of people, even before the world began, God had already separated all of his creation as far as mankind is concerned, had separated them out of those that he would bestow grace upon and those who he would not. In theological terms, we call that they are elected or they are reprobated. There is the elect of God, there is the reprobate, okay? And that was chosen out before the foundation of the world. And so whenever Abraham and, and Christ had this conversation way back when, whenever he came and, and began to explain the gospel to Abraham, and Abraham saw that Christ was his righteousness and counted Christ as his righteousness, then Christ told him that, you know, your seed is going to be plenty. It's going to be throughout every nation, and it's going to bless every nation. Now, we found out in Galatians already that that seed is talking about Christ. It's not talking about seeds, plural, in the natural. It's talking about seed in the spiritual, and it's talking about Christ. And we've seen that in verse 16 of chapter 3. Now, to Abraham and his seed where the promise is made, he saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. So the promise made to Abraham was about Christ. But yet, everybody that is in Christ is also the seed of Christ. Uh, and so we talked about this seed. We talked about the seed of Christ and all the righteousness, the generation of Christ. We talked about there is a generation that will serve him. Remember, we went to the Old Testament and seen that they, there is a generation that will serve him. And so the elect of God were people who had been chosen out or sanctified, set apart for God before the foundation of the world. To be a people unto him. And there were people that was going to be created that was not there. Look with me if you would. Put your, keep your hands in Galatians. But look in Romans chapter 9. A very, uh, very, uh, strong chapter on election. And, uh, it's funny. I, sometimes I go through preachers and listen that go preach verse by verse and I'll go through. And listen, and a lot of times this whole chapter is almost skipped. Um, look with me in, in chapter 9, and ver- starting in verse uh, uh, 6. It says, Not as though the word of God had taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. So here again we're, we're seeing there's a natural Israel of the flesh, and then there's a spiritual Israel. Okay, The true Israel is the spiritual Israel. Okay? Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. See, remember Isaac was a child of promise. He was a child that was born miraculously out of a womb, you know, a seed in a womb that 
shouldn't have had kids. They were too old. But yet he was a child of promise. Remember, though, Abraham also had another child of flesh called Ishmael. But that was not the child of promise. That was, matter of fact, that was the child that was kicked out with his mother. Okay? It was Isaac who the promise was made. It says, this is they, or this, that is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. See, it's the spiritual children of God that are counted as the seed of God. It's not the fleshly children. Okay? And that's why we see there's a difference between what we believe and what, uh, you know, the, like the Presbyterians believe, you know, the people that believe in covenant, covenant children. Uh, because I'm a Christian, my children, you know, are in that covenant because uh, I'm a Christian. Okay? It's the same mentality that the Israelites had at the time of Jesus. Remember whenever Jesus talked to them about being Abraham's children, they said, hey, we don't have to worry about anything. We're Abraham's children. You know, we've got it made. We're Abraham's children. We're of the promise. We're, we're the elect of God. We're the people of God. So we don't have to worry about anything. And Jesus was telling them, you know, if you were Abraham's children, you would believe on me. Because Abraham believed on me. And as, as we see here, and as we'll see in the other verses, we see that, <clears throat> that it isn't the children of the flesh who are counted as the children of God. It's the children of the spirit. It's the natural, uh, or it's the spiritual children, not the natural children. And so Paul is saying here, he says, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. You can't take the flesh and make the flesh the place where anything spiritual is going to be accounted for anything. Okay? For this is the word of promise. At that, at this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebecca also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac. For here it is, the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil. So see, it didn't have anything to do with anything that they had done. The decision was made before either one of these children had come from the womb, had done anything neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. See, God had a purpose according to election. God had elected a people before the foundation of the world, and he had a purpose for those people. And he had a purpose for everyone else as well. And so these people that God had purposed before the foundation of the world to be the elect of God, or as the elect of God... Uh, didn't he didn't choose them by anything that they had done. He didn't look down the corridor of time and see that they would accept him or receive him or believe on him or love him or, you know, join a church or get baptized or do any other good work. He didn't look down and see anything, not having done anything good or bad. It didn't have anything to do with their good works. It didn't have anything to do with their bad works. It was according to his purpose in election. That the, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but him that calls. So it, it had everything to do with God's purpose, the one who calls. He called them as his people. He called them as his children, as his elect. And we were eternally his children. We didn't become his children in time. I know a lot of people, and I've heard it, and I even taught it myself at one point in time, that we become the children of God whenever we believe upon him. That's not when we became the children of God. We are already the children of God before we were ever born, before God ever created anything. He already had his children. We're going to see that here in just a minute. But look at verse 12. It says, It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Oh, wow. God does hate people, doesn't he? He does. The Bible teaches that. You know, we don't have to shy away from that. A lot of people want to shy away from the fact that God does not love everybody. Uh, there is a hatred that God has. The Bible says that he is, uh, that he hates all doers of iniquity in Psalms. Uh, the Bible teaches that he hates, uh, those who are wicked, uh, who are not of his seed. He hates those. And so, we just let the Bible say what it is. You know, I, I posted the thing not too long ago on Facebook uh, where I said, you know, it's not my job as a pastor or preacher uh, to try to make God out, whether it's good or bad, to, to do anything to try to pump him up one way or the other. It's my job as a pastor to just preach what's been revealed of God. I'm to preach God for who he is. I don't make God to be good. I don't make God to be bad. I make God to be who he is. 
And I preach what it says in the word of God. And that's how we be, that, you know, we need to pray that the spirit would keep us faithful to preach that. But so often, and I'm guilty of this too, in, in my beginnings of, of, of what I know and, and preach now, whenever I begin to first see these, to kind of hide these because I knew people wouldn't receive them because it's and completely opposite of what we hear taught most of our lives growing up. Um, but yet we have to be faithful to that. And God has said these things and we just, uh, it's not what I say. It's not Mike's theology. It's not Sovereign Grace Baptist Church's theology. It's, it's the doctrine of Christ. It's what Christ has put in his word, God's word. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Even the parts that we don't like is profitable. So we have to preach them. The Bible tells us that we preach the whole counsel of God's word, not just hide it. We don't have a, we don't have a gospel for the seeker. We don't have a gospel for those who don't know. We don't have a gospel for the immature. We don't have a gospel for the mature. Well, you don't preach that until they have been coming for quite a while. No, we have one gospel. We preach that gospel. We preach the whole counsel of God. And as I said, the Spirit of God, give you an example. Our children, our whole entire life, well, I say our whole entire life, ever since we began to learn more rightly of the things of God and, and what the Bible teaches, um, we have had our children in the, in, in the, in the preaching of God's word. We don't, we never separated them out. Whenever we came here, I was thankful that this church didn't do it. They didn't separate the children out into other things. They bring the children in. All, the whole family came to church. The whole family listened to the message. And, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of people say, well, how can, you know, the children, they won't learn or do anything. Listen, these children have grown up listening to doctrinal preaching. That isn't dumbed down to a level of ABCs and one, two, threes. They listen to this thing and they can articulate. A lot of them can articulate already the things of God and, and, and be able to say that. I've seen other children uh, that are friends of ours that have grown up in church but have not been separated out. They can articulate these things. Listen, the word of God is strong and it's powerful. And when the spirit takes that word and reveals that word, it doesn't matter if you're nine years old, if you're nine years old, it doesn't matter. The spirit is the one who teaches us. And listen, to say that the spirit can't teach a five-year-old the gospel is ridiculous. For us to hear the preaching, we look through scripture. They didn't separate the children out into, into little children's people's places you know, to hear, hear, you know, Jesus talked about. No, they sit there with them and they listen. They listen. Jesus preached all those sermons you've seen Jesus preach. The children were there with them. And so whenever we come to these things here, we think, you know, well, man, we shouldn't preach this to these people or this people. No, listen, we should preach it all uh, because it's the spirit that gives us. And I didn't mean to go down that rabbit trail, but uh, it just jumped and I ran. Uh, verse 13, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Here's the, here's the thing that comes up. Wait a minute. You're saying that God chose some according to nothing and others according to nothing and neither one of them has a chance to make a choice of their own? Then God is unrighteous in doing so. Have you ever heard that? Well, that would be unrighteous of God. That will that. That would be wrong of God. That's not just. Well, Paul, the Holy Spirit, I should say, was well aware of the arguments of the natural mind. And he said here, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? And what does he say? God forbid. forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, that should lay down any notion of free will that we can come to Christ of our own free will. It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee. What was the purpose of Pharaoh? Why did God create Pharaoh? For the purpose of raising him up so that God might show his power in Pharaoh. God showed his power through Pharaoh and his disobedience to God. If you go back to the Genesis, or if you go back to the Exodus account, you see that God, before anything happened with Pharaoh, had already told Moses, go down and tell Pharaoh to let my people go, tell him all these things. He is not going to listen to you. I will harden his, I will harden his heart. 
and he won't let them go. And what happened? Moses went down there. He told Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his heart. He didn't listen. The plagues came. What happened? It happened again, 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 and again. And if you go back and look in the scriptures, and check, you can check me out on this, after every time that happened, it said, and Pharaoh hardened his heart just as the Lord had said. Well, how did the Lord have said it? The Lord was going to harden his heart. See, the Lord is the one who is controlling all things. He is sovereign over all things. He's in complete control. He has predestinated all things. And Pharaoh was raised up for a purpose. The Bible says that he has created all things, yea, even the wicked, for the day of evil. God has created the wicked line of people for the day of evil. He has created them for a purpose. You go into, uh, I think it's in uh, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, uh, I can't remember right off the top of my head. Where it talks about the false prophets and the false teachers. And the Bible says that those false prophets and false teachers, that they were ordained to that condemnation. What does the word ordained mean? It means to choose out, but it basically means to be predestined. God had ordained them to that condemnation of being false teachers. They were going to be false teachers because God had ordained them that way. What about Judas? We talk about Judas. Judas was a man who God had raised up for a specific purpose. What about all those ones that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ? The Bible said that you by wicked hands have taken by the determinate counsel of God. God determined that those wicked acts would be part of his purpose, that in every generation all those things... Think about Jacob or uh, Joseph and his brothers throwing him in the pit, wanting to kill him, selling him into slavery and all those things. The Bible says that what you meant for evil, God meant for good. It was an evil act. They did the evil act. It was evil. But it was something that God before had ordained to happen because he meant it for good. What happened? Joseph got sold into slavery, but God moved him up in stature and in and rank. And whenever he got up there, he was able to save all the Israelites that came in to Egypt. First, it was just his family, but what happened? It grew for 400 years. It grew into millions and millions of people. See, God had a purpose, and that purpose was brought forth by evil acts. <coughs> so there again, we have to have these categories in our mind that God does things, and we preach God the way that, God, that he's revealed and not the way that we think we ought to preach him to make him look good in people's eyes. Just preach what the Bible says. And the Bible says here that he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. So then it is not of him that will, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. This all does have a point, by the way. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, why doth ye yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? So there again, another question comes up. Well, if it's God that determines all these things, then, you know, then who can resist his will? Nobody can resist his will. God does what he wants to do. And then how can he lay fault on me? How can he judge me for what I'm doing? But look what God says in verse 20. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known? See, that's God's purpose. God's purpose is to show his wrath and to make his power known. That's what he did with Pharaoh. He showed his wrath and he made his power known in Pharaoh. One of these days he's going to make his power known. He's going to show his wrath on all the wicked mankind. Okay? What if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? Now I've heard some preachers say that, that word fitted there means that they, that he fitted them, that they fitted themselves for destruction. That's not true. It says right here that they and he endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. Uh, we just learned if you, if you let the context define what it says, he just said, "Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto dishonor?" He's the one who makes that happen. It's not somebody they, that fitted themselves. It's God who had fitted them for destruction. 
And there's several verses in the Bible that teaches that. Verse 23, And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. So you see here, brethren, the riches, the vessels of mercy have been afore prepared unto glory. That means before the foundation of the world, before anything, in God's purpose, he had a line of people that was going to be for his glory in, in, uh, 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 in their saving, in their redemption, in, in, in what Christ would do for them. And then there would be a people that would be vessels of wrath fitted for destruction, made for destruction, made or ordained for destruction. And it's all going to be based on his justice. And he is not going to be unjust in doing that because he is the sovereign over all things and nobody can tell him what to do. His law is for man, not for himself. God give law to man, but God is not beholden to anybody. Nobody can tell God what to do and what he can't do. Okay? I give this illustration all the time. <clears throat> my, my mom and dad, they have a pond out on their, uh, out on their, uh, property. <laughs> And my dad can go, and he could put up signs all around his property saying, you know, no fishing in this pond. Okay? Well, one day he walks down, and he sees this guy out here fishing in his pond. My dad goes down there, and if, you know, my dad, he's probably going down there with a gun. <clears throat> he goes down and says, you know, hey, what are you doing on my property? Don't you see all the signs? It says, no fishing. And the guy said, well, I seen you out here fishing the other day. I just figured it was all right. And the guy said, well, th- this is my pond. I can do whatever I want. The law that I put up around here was for you, not for me. Okay? See, the law that God gave us was for us, not for him. The Bible says that he is who he is. I am that I am. Nobody can tell me what I can do and what I can't do. I, whatever I do. And here's the thing. God doesn't do things good, and that makes him good. God is good, and anything that he does is good. Give you an example. Whenever God commanded the Israelites to go into the land and to kill everybody in the land. Now, didn't he, did he not give a law to men to say, do not go murder? But yet, what did they do? They went in and they killed everybody in the land. Why? So that God could give them the land. Now, was God evil or wicked for telling them to do that? No, matter of fact, they were disobedient if they didn't do that. You remember when the, when they saved the, the king and they hid some of the goodies down in the tent? And what did, what happened? God told the prophet to go in and they chopped him up in pieces because they kept some alive. He didn't kill them all. Now let me ask you, is God wicked for doing that? No, God's not wicked because God is not beholden to the things that he told a man. And so here we see whenever God chooses one and not another, God is not wicked or unrighteous in doing so because he's not beholden to a righteousness or a law or any kind of standard of anyone else. He is the standard. He is the one who is righteous and holy. So in everything he does, it's righteous and holy. And if he says, I can choose this man to never receive salvation and then judge that man for the sins that he commits throughout his life and then eternally uh, 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 punish that man... Nobody can say, you can't do that. Ain't that what he says? He says, you can't reply. Why? Does the thing for him say, why has thou made me this way? You know, who can resist God? We don't have that right. God is sovereign to do those things, and he can do it. And so here we see, and that he might make known the riches of his glory under the vessels of mercy, which he hath afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also... Uh, of the Gentiles. So in Romans 9, we see that there are two groups of people that God has ordained, and that is those who are vessels of mercy, those who are vessels of destruction, or uh, the vessels of honor and the vessels of dishonor. Now let's go back to Galatians. All that to say this, <clears throat> we see that there is a seed of Christ. Here it's called Abraham's seed. Uh, we see that it's called an heir. Everyone who is the seed of Christ, and there's the spiritual union that we have with Christ, everyone who is a seed of Christ is going to receive the promise or the inheritance. Look at verse 1. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all, 
Okay? And now we talked a little bit about that last time we was together. We're not talking about age here. We're talking about understanding. Right? Remember when Paul talked to the Corinthians? He said, whenever I was a child, I spoke as a child. I thought like a child. I acted like a child. But whenever I become more mature, I put away childish things. Now, was he talking about his actual physical age and what happened? No, what was he talking about? He was talking about his understanding. Whenever I was a child in my understanding, when I was ignorant of certain things, this is how I acted. But whenever I became mature in my understanding, and I began to see this is what the the scriptures are actually teaching, when God revealed unto those apostles, opened up their understanding of the things. Remember, whenever they were walking on the road to Emmaus, and, and, and they were talking about Christ dying, and all of a sudden Christ came here and he preached to them from Genesis all the way to Malachi, preached to them and showed that that whole entire thing was about Christ. And the Bible says that he opened up their understanding. See, if our understanding isn't opened up, then we're just looking at words on paper trying to figure them out with the natural mind. But whenever we are open, our, our understanding is opened up where we are spiritually understanding what the Bible is teaching, then we begin to see things on a little more deeper level or a little more expanded or a little more uh, 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 understanding level, Okay. And so this is what he's talking about here. The heir, and he's talking about us, all of, all the children of grace, there is a period of time that we go through like a child in misunderstanding. We don't understand. We're not, we're immature in our thoughts and our understanding of the scriptures. Now remember, this is all in context about the law. Paul is coming to them because they have been bewitched by the Judaizers who are telling them, oh yeah, we believe in grace, but you gotta keep the law. You got to continue to keep the law. If you don't keep the law, then you're not saved. And Paul's coming back in and said, listen, that's not the gospel. The gospel is not law and grace. The gospel is all grace. It's only by grace. It's not the law. That if you have been united with Christ, you are no longer under the law. You are dead to the law. That husband has died. You are free from that law. And now you are under the law of Christ. The law of Christ and the law of Moses that was given to the Jews is not the same thing. The law of Christ is this. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the law of Christ. The law of Christ is to look unto Christ, the author and the finisher of your faith. The law of Christ is to believe on him and him alone for all your righteousness, whether to be accepted of God, to be justified of God, or for your preservation in the Christian life. It's all of God. None of it is on what we do. We are never looked on on our works, what we do for acceptance, for justification, for anything else, for acceptance. It's all what Christ done for us. He is our justification. He is our sanctification. He is our life. He is our preservation. Why do we believe in the uh, the perseverance of the saints? Because we believe in the preservation of God. God preserves us, therefore we persevere. See, it's the same thing, one coin, two different sides. If you look at one side and one side only persevering, you're thinking, well, we got to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we got to hang in there and do what... If you turn the coin over, you see that the only reason that you're persevering is because God is preserving you. Okay, it's all about Christ Jesus. And so what we see here in Galatians is there is a time in our lives, even though we're children of God, we have a child understanding of things. We think, oh yeah, we gotta believe, we, you know, we gotta follow the law, we gotta do good deeds, you know, we gotta come to church and do all these things to stay right with God. But what Paul is teaching them, listen, it's all of grace, everything has been taken care of. All your sins have been forgiven. I, I tell our folks here often, I say that every sin that Christ has died for, we will, we, we will commit every sin that Christ has died for, no more and no less. I mean, Christ didn't die for more sins that we, than we are going to do. And we're definitely, we're not going to sin less than what Christ has paid for. Okay. And we're not going to do more sins than Christ paid for. Otherwise they wouldn't be paid for. Same thing with works. We will do the works that God has ordained for us. No more and no less. If God ordained a certain amount of works for the spirit of God to do within us, we're not going to do any more or any less than that. Now, and as I always say, that's not, to say, just be laxadaisical and everybody to do whatever, you know, go on and just be, you know, sit on your backside, do nothing. You know, I'm not saying that. 
But what I'm saying is, is we got to understand the difference between the works of the natural man, the works of the spiritual man. The spiritual man is Christ in you. He does that work, not you. The work of God is in you, but the work of the flesh can do nothing. So we can't ever look at that. And so as we begin to learn and grow in the grace and knowledge of God, we move from being as a child, not knowing anything, but whenever the Spirit of God gives us understanding and gives us repentance to repent from, oh yeah, it isn't about my works. It's about all of what Christ did. And now I turn from looking at self-righteousness and what I do through my works to looking to Christ and what he did on my behalf by imputing his righteousness to me, and that alone is my acceptance before God, then I have now matured from a child to a mature thinking individual. That's what Paul is saying here. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all. See, we have all the inheritance of God given to us, but because we're children, we don't know. We don't know what we got. You know? We still think we got, you know, all this stuff to do. He says, but it's under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. See, there's a time that in each one of us, if you're a child of grace, there is a time that the Father comes and that by the Spirit of God, He gives you repentance. He gives you knowledge and understanding of the spiritual things of God. And at that time, then you wake up and you say, hey, and I use the illustration of the uh, prodigal son. Remember, there was a point whenever he was in the pig pen, he thought, hey, wait a minute. My father's servants have it better than I do. There's a time whenever we are given understanding of God. And so verse 3 says, even so we, (coughs) when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. What does that mean, being under the elements of the world? Well, if you look throughout Scripture, a lot of times the elements or the rudiments, your, your Bible may say rudiments, the elements or the rudiments of the world are referring back to what the Jews called the, the, the law. Okay, the, the law of man, the traditions of man. And so Paul here is saying that whenever we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. We were in bondage to the law. We didn't, we didn't know any better. We didn't know the freedom that we have in Christ, the liberty that we have in Christ, that the law has been nailed to the cross and that, that all of its ordinances, everything has been fulfilled in Christ Jesus and that all of his obedience to God's law, which was perfect, was laid to our account. Therefore, we have kept all of the law because Christ kept the law. See, we don't understand that until God opens up our understanding. And gives us that, and that that faith that we talked about, whenever it reads that in God's word, then undergirds our hope and says, yes, that's mine. I'm an heir. That's my stuff. Remember the prophet said, that's my dad. He's the Lord of all things, and the servants have it better than what I'm doing here. I'm going back to him, because he has the inheritance. And guess what? Even though he thought he squandered all his, and the Bible does say, he gave him that inheritance, he went and squandered that inheritance, but guess what? Whenever he squandered that inheritance, he was still accepted back as a son with full rights to everything that the father had. Ain't that wonderful for us? That a lot of times we may wander away and squander that in sin, but we have been given forgiveness. We have been given reconciliation to God. We can come back to God and he receives us as a son because we are sons. Even though in our minds we might not even think that. Remember that probably said, I don't even know if my father's going to let me come back. You know, I'll go back as a servant. I'll go back to him as a servant. Well, the father said, no, 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 you're my son. You're my son. And so here we see, even when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world, under the law. And if you look at that in theological perspectives, a lot of times as we grow in the grace and knowledge of God, we, you know, we think of, hey, we got to keep this, the, the, all these laws in the scripture, uh, and everything like that until the Lord brings us to the place of rest. That place of entering into his rest. What do you do when you rest? You don't do nothing, right? My kids, I, you know, whenever I come in from work, I'll sit down in my chair over there, and a lot of times I'll just fall right asleep. Now, if I'm resting, I'm not doing anything. If we rest, and that's why it's so hard to enter into his rest, is because entering into his rest is solely trusting Christ for my righteousness. That's what resting is. 
That's what abiding is. Abiding in Christ is just trusting Him for everything. I trust Him for my getting into, in, in, getting saved, my, my getting trusted for uh, justification and sanctification and for preservation. And I trust Him for everything. My daily living, he's, I trust Him for that. He's promised that He would do good work in me. He's promised that He would work out all, you know, that uh, that uh, He would work in me to the will and to do of His good pleasure. He's made those promises. I just trust Him to do that. And even though it may not look like it, sometimes I see it. I, you know, we have sin. We continue in the flesh. We're going to have sin. And it may not look like it, but we've got to trust that He is bringing us to the point where He wants us to go. And so when we look at this as it pertains to the law, we see that sometimes we hear from the outside voices, oh, you guys are antinomian because you don't believe that you're under the law anymore. Well, no, 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 no. There is no more law for the child of grace. The law wasn't ever purposed to make me righteous. The law never was given to make me holy. The law was never meant to make me accepted of God. That wasn't the purpose of the law. You've misunderstood the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was to take the child of grace who has been given spiritual eyes and ears to know that they cannot keep the law. The law was there to crush you. The law was there to show you your inability of righteousness. To show your unrighteousness. Your self-righteousness. That's what the law's purpose was. The law's purpose is never to make us accepted to God. And so... Faith and law cannot exist. Faith and words cannot exist. In fact, look at chapter 3, verse 13. Uh, I mean, verse 12. And the law is not of faith. If you're, you know, we talk, you hear this all the time on TV, radio. Oh, yeah, I'm a man of faith. I live by faith. I live by faith. Well, if you live by faith, then you're not living by law. Because the law is not of faith. And the faith is not of law. They're opposed to each other. They're two different people. They're two different husbands. And so we don't live by law. So whenever we're children, we think that we're under this bondage, we're under this law, and that we have to continue to keep this righteousness and holiness. If you read the Puritans, if you read a lot of these old uh, 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 writers and stuff like that, they, they keep pressing um, all this about purity and about uh, uh, and about law-keeping and about stuff like that. And listen, brethren, I'm not saying that that that's not written in our hearts. Listen, I want to do what God wants me to do. I want to be obedient to God. I want to do all these things. But just like Paul says, I know that that I want to do the good, but whenever I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Oh, wretched man that I am. As long as I'm in this body of flesh, I can't do it. In my mind, I will serve the law of uh, Christ. In my flesh, I will serve the law of sin. Paul realized that. This is going to be this warfare from now on until I die. And then when Christ removes this body of flesh and gives me a spiritual body to align with the spirit of Christ that's in me, then I will be done away with the warfare. But until then, it's there, brethren. That's why, and God does that. God has ordained that for us so that we might keep looking to him. Why is the warfare there? Paul, so you can keep looking to Christ. What was the very next verse after Paul said that? Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. I keep seeing that I can't keep the law. I keep wanting to do what God wants me to do. But I see that in my flesh, I can't do it at all. Not one iota can I do it. So what is my consolation? There is therefore now no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. Child of grace, we're going to fail. We're going to sin. This body of flesh is going to continue to be worthless in righteousness. So quit thinking that you, by your own efforts, can produce a righteousness to make you accepted of God or kept by God and look to Christ alone for your righteousness. It is then and only then that you will experience the freedom, the liberty, and the rest that Christ promised. And we can only do that as God gives us that understanding. It is whenever the time of the Father appoints to us. Look at look at um, verse 4. But when the fullness of time, we're just about done. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption 
of sons. See, the reason he came to do all of what he did is so that we might be able to, by the Spirit's work in us, realize that we are sons. To realize we can't live up to the standard of our Father, but our Father has given us a righteousness in our place. He has provided a righteousness in our place in our elder brother Christ. Christ has been our righteousness. His life that he lived for us in obedience to the law was laid to our account. And in this old man who deserves all the wrath of God, Christ stood as our substitute, as a lamb in our place, and he took the full wrath of God. So all the righteousness that was needed to uh, to fulfill God's law and justice, Christ did for us. That's laid to your account. And every bit of wrath that you deserve because of your sinful old man, Christ also took that and laid that to your account. You have received the full wrath of God on you because Christ took it for you. But the good side of that is that you also receive the full righteousness of Christ in your place because he procured that for you also. See, there's a difference between Christ's suretyship and Christ's substitutionary work. They're, they sound the same, but they're not the same. We sang it this morning about Christ being our surety. Christ is our surety, meaning that he is the one that the judge looks at and says, I will accept you in his place. But substitution is actually taking the place of the one there and taking the full payment or the full penalty that was required by that person. And so if Christ really did substitute, and here, here's where we get in. Why did we talk about election? Why did we talk about reprobation? Why did we talk about God hating some and, and not others? Why do we talk about this, these things? Because here it is, brethren. It comes down to the very heart of the gospel. If Jesus Christ is a substitute, that means he took someone's place, right? Substitute means he went in someone's place. If he is the substitute for all mankind, that means that everything that he did in his life work, his obedience to the law, and everything that he did and received in that death upon the cross was a substitute then for every man. If he substituted for every man, then every man receives the results of that substitution. If Christ lived a perfect life, that life is imputed to all for whom he died. And for all for whom he died, he took the full wrath of God. And the Bible says that it has been propitiated. That means that word propitiation means that God's wrath has been appeased. God no longer has wrath on that person. And if God has, has, has laid out all of his wrath upon Christ as a substitute for somebody, and Christ, and the Bible says that God was, was satisfied with that, then that means his wrath has been appeased, propitiated. If it's been propitiated, that means there is no more wrath. And if he's done that for everybody, then that means there is no more wrath for everybody. So either you need to be a universalist and believe everybody's going to be saved, or you need to believe sovereign grace. But there are some that God has chosen for salvation and some that he has not. But this middle way that I grew up believing that all men God has died for and loves and wants them to be saved, but he only will give it if you trust him, believe on him, receive him, uh, confess him before men, be baptized, all this stuff that we tell people that they have to do to be saved. Listen, that's not, that's not the truth of the gospel. See, God isn't waiting to save you, but the Bible says you should call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And he did. Isaiah 53 says that the Bible says that he saw the travail of his soul and was satisfied. And by his righteous servant, he shall justify many. He didn't say justify all. He said justify many. And so we see here, brethren, in our text, the heirs, the seed of Abraham, the heirs according to the promise, these are the ones who are the line of Christ. They are the seed of Christ, and they will receive that inheritance. There is no way they cannot receive. We, and I've mentioned this before. We talk about people on the other side of the world in areas that's supposedly not been reached by the gospel, and we say, oh, there are people dying and going to hell that we haven't reached yet. Listen, the Bible says, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. 
And in, and anyone who comes unto me, I will in no wise cast out. That is a promise that God has made that everyone that has been given to Christ will come to me. There will not be one person in hell that Christ died for. And there will not be one person in heaven that Christ did not die for. <coughs> the number has been fixed. And so when we look at this about law, when we look about this about grace, we see that we have been given this and nothing can keep us from the inheritance. The inheritance is ours, whether we look like we deserve it or not. Most, And I will say all the time, we look like we don't deserve it. But brethren, that's where faith is. God gives us faith to trust that I know I don't deserve it. I know I don't look like I deserve it. I really am totally enabled to keep what God has told me to do. But yet he did it for me by his righteousness, by his work. So we see in verse six, and because ye are sons, notice that because ye are sons, God hath sent forth his spirit of his son into your hearts. See, I grew up believing, being taught, and then thus preaching for many years. I preached that whenever you ask Jesus Christ to come into your heart to be your Lord and Savior, and you repent of your sins, you come forward and shake the preacher's hand or write down a card or do whatever it is that you say to do, it's then you become a child of God. And then, then God sends a spirit into your heart. But this is not what the Bible says. The Bible says, because ye are, I was already a son, and because I was a son, God sent his spirit at the time of his choosing. Remember up there in verse 2, but as under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. There's a time appointed by the Father whenever we receive the knowledge of Christ. And it says here, because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit into your hearts crying, Abba, Father, wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. At that point, no, in our understanding. At that point, whenever faith comes in, whenever the knowledge of Christ comes in and his salvation comes in, when the gospel is made known to us and revealed to us by the Spirit of God, what happens? Our knowledge changes, our understanding changes, and we go from being a child to knowing that we're a son. We know that we are an heir, and everything that has been promised is promised to us. Wherefore thou art no more a servant but a son, and if a son... Then an heir of God through Christ. How be it then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. But now, after that, ye have have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again back to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? Brethren, why would we ever want to go back to the law whenever we have been given the understanding and that's what Paul's trying to tell to the Galatians. He said, listen, whenever I came to you, I didn't preach something from some other man. I preached what was delivered to me directly from Christ. The gospel I give you is the gospel of Christ. He gave it to me from his own lips. And I give it to you. And you receive that. You believe that. But now you've been bewitched. You've been turned away by these Judaizers to come in saying you need to continue to keep the law. You need to continue to keep the law. And so Paul is telling them, hey, listen. Why would you turn turn back to something? And especially in Galatia, this was a Gentile church. The Gentiles were never under the law. Why would you turn to something that you never was under? And why would you try to keep something that you know that you cannot keep? A couple of last verses. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10. The Bible says, Hebrews 2.10, For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons unto glory. <coughs> he's, who's he bringing to glory? His children. He's bringing his children to glory. And by whom all things in bringing many sons to glory. If you just read this verse and think about it, brethren, this is talking about the purpose of God. Before anything was created, why did Christ come forth? Why did God bring forth Christ 
as the Redeemer, as the Savior, as the Messiah, as the surety, as the substitute, the propitiator? Why did God bring forth Christ, robed in flesh, God in, God in flesh? Why did he come and bring him forth before anything had ever happened? Well, it says here, For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things. We know that's talking about Christ, right? The Bible says that all things are by him and for him and to him. We know the Bible says that by him he created all things. Jesus, the word was with God and the word was God. All things were made by him and for him in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified, that's God, Christ who sanctifieth, and those who are sanctified, what does it say? Are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. See, there is this vital union between us and Christ. That's why we are heirs. That's why we receive the promise. That's why God sends his spirit into us. That's why we're called the children of God. That's why we're called the righteous. That's why we're called the, the sheep. That's why we're called the wheat. Because before the foundation of the world, there existed a relationship, a true vital unity between the child and the father. Jesus said, thine they were. They were yours, and thou hast given them to me. In John 17, whenever we prayed to, to, to the Father, he said, Thine they were. Thou gavest them to me, and I have manifested myself unto them, that they might know that I am from thee. See, there was this union between us and God in a spiritual life, in a spiritual way, in a seminal way, in a seed way. There was life there. In him is life, and he has given unto us eternal life. That God has given him power over all flesh to give eternal life to as many as God hath given him. See, that life, the Bible says, is hid with Christ in God. See, that life that we have whenever born from above, that life is a new creation. It's not this old flesh reworked. That's why I say the the term regeneration, that theological term regeneration, is misapplied. That's not what, if you look at the Bible, the Bible talks about regeneration is that time when Christ died on the cross and was raised from the dead. We are quickened of God. We are born from above. It's a new creation. It's not of this world. It's from somewhere else. It's from the heavens. The Bible says that it is of a heavenly birth. It's a new birth. It's a different kind of birth. It's a spiritual birth. And that spiritual birth that we receive is the life of Christ. It's Christ in you. It's his life. And see, that life was hid with Christ in God, and we were in him before the foundation of the world. Therefore, that's why this is saying, both he that sanctifieth, and that word sanctified doesn't mean make more holy. That word sanctified means to set apart. It says, those who set apart. When were we set apart for Christ? Well, we read it in Romans 9 when God out of, uh, where, where God had elected some, not having done anything good or bad, for vessels, to be vessels of glory and some to be vessels of dishonor. God set us apart. God sanctified us in Christ Jesus. See, our sanctification happened before the foundation of the world in election. And therefore, whenever he made one lump, Adam, natural man, out of that one lump, there came people that would not receive. There would be people that would receive all out of that one lump. So in fleshly Adam, God redeems his people out of them. See, election happened before Adam, not after Adam. Now, in theological terms, for anybody who's theological geeks, you have superlapsarianism, you have infralapsarianism. Y'all can go look that up whenever you get home. My grandpa used to call them 50 cent words. <laughs> but it says here, it says, <clears throat> saying, for both he that sanctified, they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call the brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. See, he only declares his name to his people. Unto whom am the arm of God been stretched, right? Remember Isaiah, he said, you know, to whom has the arm of God been revealed? 
the the answer to the question is the only ones that have that understand that and know that are the ones to whom the arm of God has been revealed. He has to be he has to reveal that. I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church. Will I sing praise unto thee? And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here it is. Behold, I and the children which God hath given me. See, God gave the children to Christ. And he did that before the foundation of the world. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Now let me ask you, uh, Brother Elder Lackey, <clears throat> I heard him talk about this this week, and I'm in complete agreement with him on this. It says, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood. That to me sounds like they were children before they even took on flesh and blood. The children were partakers of flesh and blood. Just like Christ before he took on flesh. Existed, right? We too existed before we took on flesh and blood. But we existed in Christ, that life, that spiritual life. Now again, we're not talking about fleshly Adam man. We're talking about spiritual life. That spiritual person who we are. That new man, that new creation. The Bible says that we are created in Christ Jesus. We are created. We, the people of God, are created in him. That's eternal vital unity. We are created in him. Therefore, if we are in him, everything that is promised to him is given to us. Why? Because we are heirs of him. We are his children. We are his seed. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same that through death he might destroy him that hath the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all the time, lifetime, subject to bondage. See, we were subject to bondage. It's going back to what we've seen in Galatians. There was a time when we, in our minds, was in fear. We were in bondage. I can't keep God's law. I can't keep God's law. God's wrath is going to come upon me. I can't do anything to please God. And all that was in bondage until all of a sudden the gospel came and said, great news, great news. We know you can't keep the law. That's why Christ came. He came to fulfill the law for you, and he came to die the death that you deserve. And it's yours because you're his child. You're his children. We see that the Bible says that the Spirit of God is given to us that we might know what is freely given to us. Corinthians 2.14 or 12.14. So brethren, listen, as we look, as we, and we're going to press on, as a matter of fact, we're probably going to be in this section of Galatians uh, here because I want to go back and, and reiterate some other points that was in there that I didn't get to. My main point was wanting to tie in the seed of Christ and that the reason that we receive the promises of Christ, the reason that we receive the liberty that is in Christ is because we are heirs. We are his children. We've been given to that because we are his people. And so we'll return back to this section of teaching uh, next week, Lord willing. Does anybody have any questions or comments or anything? I always give time for any rebuttals or corrections or rebukes. I'm not above, I'm not above error. I'm not, in, I'm not infallible. I'm fallible just like anybody else. But, um, as long as we use God's word to do it and not man's philosophies or traditions, uh, I'm always open for correction and rebuke. Anybody got anything? Thank you for bringing the word. Appreciate it. Yeah. Okay, if nobody has anything, well, let's bow and have a little prayer. I apologize, I forgot to pray before we even started. Just kind of jumped right in. I kind of antsy. I hadn't preached in about three weeks. So <laughs> ready to jump right in. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for today, and we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and the life that we have in and through Him. Father, we thank you for salvation, for forgiveness of sin for the reconciliation to God. We thank you, Father, that you have given us life and life eternal. And Father, we just are are unworthy of all these things that we have talked about today. And just like that prodigal, we often find our our face down in the pigsty and the in the in the mud and the mire of our flesh, fulfilling the lust of the eye and the lust of the mind, the uh lust of the heart, the pride of life, all these things we we, we seek after in this flesh and 
Father, we often return to our vomit. But Lord, we are so thankful that by grace you have saved us and that you have given us the promise and the inheritance of Christ. We thank you for our elder brother who lived that perfect life for us, that he might also die that death that he died. The perfect lamb of God taking away the sins of the world. And so Father, we just thank you so much that you have, that you have, uh, counted us in that number of your children. Lord, we know it, it wasn't anything that we did to deserve it. We know that there's nothing that we can do to keep it. And so Father, by faith, I pray you keep us, um, faithful. That you keep us trusting in Christ alone. And that you might, uh, that you might squelch the self-righteous acts that we think that we can accomplish in our flesh to be something in your sight and in your eyes. We know that you have said that all men are wicked and evil and that there is nothing good in them, that whenever you looked down from heaven, you saw that the intent of their heart was only evil continually. That's who we are in the flesh. And that it's just flesh and it cannot please you. It can't do anything, Lord. And so we we have to trust in you alone. And, and Lord, we can only do that if the Spirit enables us to do so. So we pray that. Father, I pray for this church, and I pray that you would uh, <clears throat> continue to keep us faithful to the preaching of the word, the teaching of the word, to the fellowship of the brethren. Lord, we pray for our members that are not here today. We pray for uh, Kevin and Jacqueline and for uh, Alessandro, Lord. We pray that you would keep them safe on their trip to back to Guatemala, and while they're gone, Lord, we just pray that you would uh, uh, keep them safe, and, and Lord, that you would give them a good time of a fellowship with their family. We pray for Brother Ed, uh, who's not able to be here today. Lord, we just ask that you'd be with him. Uh, we continue to lift him and his family up in, in, in the, uh, uh, during this time of grieving over the, the, his son and has passed away. Lord, and, and for Beth and for Mike and Lord, we just ask that you'd be with them as they build their new home. Uh, and, and, and Lord, we just thank you so much for all that you've done. Uh, Father, I thank you for these uh, two brothers that have uh, been here with us and visiting, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you keep them safe in their travels to be with them during this wedding that they're at, Lord. Or we pray that you would bless this wedding, this marriage that is about to happen. Uh, Lord, that you'd be with them on their uh, way home, giving them safety. Uh, and we thank you for their time here and their input that they've given. Lord, and we just are so grateful for all things. Lord, we know that all things are given by you. And uh, that all good gifts come down from the Father of lights. And so, Lord, we know it's you and you only. And so we ask this all now in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. Amen.